It's, uh, it's good to be here with you rather than at home uh, recovering, uh, although I am about 80%. I do appreciate and uh, Jill, I thank you for your prayers as well as she continues to recover. She is uh, uh, mending, but uh, still got a, a little bit ways to go. Um, so we're, and uh, we have also a lot of other families and individuals who have tested positive for COVID as well. So we want to uh, pray for them uh, in just a moment. We also have a couple of young children who have RSV. So we want to pray for their healing as well. I want to thank uh, everyone for scrambling uh, to put things together. Uh, last Sunday, Pastor Justin filling in in terms of handling communion. Uh, Pastor Josh, uh, Josh Barlow from Green Pond Bible Chapel. Um, it was sort of a last minute thing on Saturday. I woke up and my voice was about eight octaves lower than it is, um, it's, which is kind of cool when you want, really want a deep bass like Barry White voice. Some of you old enough to remember who Barry White is, um, but that would have not worked uh, in terms of stamina. On a, on a more, um, an, an equally important note, we received a, an email with regard to um, Newton Chilangulo. You remember that um, Several years ago, Newton was involved in an accident in which he accidentally struck and killed um, some children. And his case has been moving very slowly through the Malawi courts. And uh, so I'm going to read to you a, a, um, just a brief word of an email that he sent to us. Uh, Newton writes that we covet your prayer uh, for the court case. I've been waiting for the court case uh, court date to hear whether the state will finally amend the charges from manslaughter to motor accident. It has been hard waiting and I have been anxious, but thankfully I have been notified this morning that the judge will hear my case Monday, September 12th. If you received our last update, I had communicated that my lawyer and the state uh, prosecutor were discussing a plea bargain and we will find out in court on Monday if the state will stick to that arrangement or pursue trial. Please pray for peace. It's been difficult to live in suspense not knowing what will come next. So we want to pray for our brother and for his family. Let's do that now, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we, we do pray for, for Newton, and we do pray that uh, the court there in Malawi would, would give him, um, would view him with a grace. This is a, a very difficult and uh, emotionally and spiritually trying time for Newton, for his family, for the family of the children whose lives were lost. We pray, Lord God, that the state would accept the, the plea and reduce uh, the charge from um, manslaughter to a motor accident, and then that New Newton can be uh, released and sent back to his family. We thank you for the fact that he has a lawyer, that he has representation legally, but we do pray, Lord God, for a successful outcome tomorrow at his trial, that you would also continue to, to comfort uh, the families of the children, Father. And I know Root and Newton has reached out to them, and we do pray that your grace, your spirit, would continue to work healing and um, re reconciliation in the midst of this. We pray also, Father, for healing uh, for those families and individuals, uh, Jill among them, who have tested positive for COVID. Father, that you would uh, speed their recovery and their healing. We pray for uh, the, the children and our members who have RSV, that their symptoms, Lord God, would also improve. 
and that they too would be restored to health. We also remember on this day, Lord God, this is September 11th, uh, 21 years ago. It seems hard to imagine that that much time has gone by, half a generation, Father, um, since uh, the tragic events here in lower Manhattan, the Pentagon, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So we pray that as uh, there are services of remembrance this morning for your continued ministry of comfort and healing for the families uh, affected and still affected uh, by the events of, of 9-11. And uh, we thank you as well, Lord God, for your church, for your word, which is eternal and um, true and reliable, and that you, O oh Lord God, are yourself true, eternal, and reliable. So we now ask that as we read uh, this word from Psalm 90, your spirit would impart to us what it is that you would have us to learn and to know and then to apply. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' strong and precious name. Amen. Psalm 90. Uh, let me get my... There we are. All right. Psalm 90, you'll... Uh, <clears throat> it begins the fourth book of the Psalms, and uh, it begins as a prayer of Moses... Uh, the man of God, we're told. Uh, the Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your, in your sight, but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set your, our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. <coughs> I beg your pardon. I will see if I can get through this with a minimal amount of coughing or sniffles, so I, I do beg your indulgence. Uh, the first thing you notice, and it, I know there's an echo here, isn't there? Unless It's not me, is it? It's just because my ears are full. So I apologize for the echo as well. We'll see if we can work on that. Uh, the first thing you notice about Psalm 90 is the title. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The second thing you notice about Psalm 90 is that it's the first book of, uh, the first Psalm of book four, uh, in the Psalter, and that it follows Psalm 89. Um, and the reason for that is more than numerical. It is deliberate. Uh, 
Because like Psalm 88, Psalm 89 is a, is a prayer of lament. Not only does it lament the injustice and the oppression that Israel is suffering at the hands of her enemies, but Psalm 89, like Psalm 88, um, also expresses dismay at the apparent absence of God and his um, just almost disappearance so far as the psalmist is concerned with regard to his care and concern. And that is really best expressed at the end of Psalm 89 uh, in verse 49, when Ethan, the Ezraite, who wrote Psalm 89, writes, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And so that question is not answered by the end of Psalm 89. There's a plea at the end, very last couple of verses of Psalm 89 for God to remember um, the suffering of Ezra, to remember the suffering of his people. But that question, where is your steadfast love, your faithfulness which you showed to David, where is that? That question is not answered in Psalm 89, but it is answered in Psalm 90, which is why Psalm 90 follows Psalm 89 in the Psalter. Remember, the third book of the Psalms, Psalms 73 to 89, all those Psalms, by and large, are Psalms of lament. The crying and, and complaining about their, Israel's condition and God's apparent abandonment of his people. Then when you get into Psalm 90, uh, the, the fourth book, 90 to 107, there's a distinct tone of uh, change in tone where the, the faithfulness, the eternity of God, the eternal trustworthiness of God begins to um, take root and take form. And it ends with this glorious uh, statement in Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Uh, let the redeemed of the Lord say that God is faithful, that God is our dwelling place and, and all of that. So Psalm 89 ends with a question unanswered that Psalm 90 answers. And Psalm 90 is simply a very straight forward declaration, a statement of fact that God is our eternal dwelling place. He is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble, that despite all appearances to the contrary, the steadfast love of God never ceases, his faithfulness never comes to an end. In short, if you want to look for just sort of a main idea for the psalm, it's simply this, that the God who is eternal is eternally reliable. And Moses gives us four reasons why we can trust in the eternal reliability of God. He tells us that God is our refuge from everlasting to everlasting. God is our eternal refuge. We're all born with an expiration date. Life is short because sin has consequences. And then wise hearts are permitted to make bold requests. All this stems from God being eternally reliable. So Moses begins with this declaration that God is our refuge from everlasting to everlasting. He writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains ever were brought forth, or ever had you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He writes in the past tense. Because Moses is declaring a well-known, well-established truth, not a new discovery. This is not something that he has just stumbled upon, but this is something that from the very foundation of the world, before the world even existed, God is a refuge and strength for his people. Remember, it's Moses who writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there is this 
deliberate placement of Psalm 90 at the, at the start of book 4, after this book of lament and complaint, where the, as they compose the Psalter, there is this immediate and firm reminder that God is, was, and always will be our protector and provider in all generations. Before Israel even came into existence, God is their refuge and strength. Before we were ever formed in our mother's womb, God is our refuge and strength. It's interesting that God dwelling with his people, it's how the Bible begins, and it's how the Bible ends. The, the book of Revelation ends with this glorious declaration in Revelation 21, where John sees this beautiful vision of the new heaven and the new earth, and he writes in verse 3 of Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So the Bible starts with this declaration that God is our dwelling place, and it ends with this wonderful affirmation, this image, this picture, this glorious image of God dwelling with his people, so that there is never a time, and never will be a time, when God is not our dwelling place, when he is not our refuge and strength. Never a time when he is not our present help in time of trouble. Never a time when he is not our protector and our provider. Never a time, never a time when we are not in his presence. So the question is asked at the end of Psalm 89, Lord, where is your steadfast love, your faithfulness which you promised to David? The, the answer is, it's always there. You may not sense it, you may not feel it, you may not be aware of it, but it is always there. It is as present as time. It is as constant as the sun. It is, in fact, as close as the very breath in your lungs, because that's another image that God gives to Moses to communicate to his people. When Moses is encouraging Israel to trust in the faithfulness of God in Deuteronomy, he tells them, you don't have to go searching out there for God's word. You don't have to make a thorough search of the earth. But he says, what is it? The word is as close to you, it is as near to you as the breath in your lungs. Paul affirms the same thing in Romans. So you want to be aware of God's presence in your life? Take a breath. That breath that you take is God's gift to you. It is an indication of his presence. Because the psalmist also says in Psalm 104 that God gives breath to all that lives. And when we die, he takes that breath back to himself as he welcomes us into his presence. So how do you know God is with you? Take a breath. That breath is his gift to you. That breath is his sign that he is with you. That he has not abandoned you. That he has not forsaken you. That the same God who is high and lifted up, we sang about the exalted nature of our God, that he is crowned with many crowns, that same God that is wholly transcendent is also incredibly imminent, as close to us as the breath in our lungs, that he is, because of that, our help and our comfort, our wisdom and our perspective. That's the other thing. 
<coughs> again, forgive me, that when you find yourself sensing God's absence, there is also, I think what comes to that at times, is a loss of perspective. We fall into what is likely, you know, you can call the always and never syndrome. It will always be like this and it will never change. And we lose that sense of wisdom and insight because we are anxious, we are in pain, or we are confused, or we, as, as Moses says, we are dismayed. And it's at that time when you sort of, it's, it's, it's well and good. Step back. Take a breath. Remember, there's never a moment, never a second, when you're not in his presence. That he sees, because God has created all that is, because from the, the foundation of time itself, God knows the plans that he has for you. For us, to give us a hope and a future. That he plans all things from start to finish. The thing that we lack when we go through times of darkness and difficulty and challenge is perspective. We lack the wisdom, we lack the insight, which may be the very reason why God leads us into those times that we might, as Moses says, gain a heart of wisdom so that we can understand and see that God is active even in those moments when we feel his absence. You might even say that the, the, the always nearness of God leads us to worship the always transcendent greatness of God. The fact that he is always present with us should lead us to praise and to worship and to honor him. The fact that not only does the Bible begin with God dwelling with us, and it ends with our dwelling with God. But right in the middle of the Bible, we have the supreme example of God dwelling with us when he sends Jesus Christ in human form, in our flesh. John even says it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent. He made his tabernacle with us. He came to live as one of us. The core of the gospel is that God comes down to where we are, that he might lift us up to be where he is. Just about every religion, if not all religions outside of Christianity, talk about pursuing God, chasing God, finding some kind of contentment. Christianity is the only religion in which God comes searching for us. The, the, the creator of the universe comes searching for his creatures. The God who created us in his image and his likeness became like us in order to make his home in the heart of everyone who believes in him. Jesus expresses this most clearly in the gospel, particularly in John 14. He says, you obey my word, I and the Father will make our home with you, inside of you. So the fact that God is our eternal refuge, our eternal dwelling place, guarantees our safety. And our safety is guaranteed by the eternal, the unchangeable, and the indomitable character of God. The rock of ages from the foundation of the world. The I am that appears to Moses in the burning bush. The eternal creator, the sovereign God who made all that is, including us. Including the very circumstances in which we find ourselves. Think about that. It's not that just you know, God creates us and he sort of sends us out into the world and says, okay, you're on your own. 
do the best you can. I'll give you some guidance every now and again. But he crafts the very circumstances into which he sends us. Because he's going to be present with us in the midst of those circumstances. That's the, that's the assurance that we have, not only in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me when I go through the valley of the shadow, but it's a very promise that Jesus makes before he ascends into glory at the end of Matthew. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the sign of that presence is the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost where God dwells within us to give us the wisdom, the insight, the power, the courage the fortitude, and all of that is necessary to walk through the various circumstances of our lives. Because he is our eternal dwelling place. And from the perspective, then, of an eternal God, the events of our lives, <laughs> the events of human history, are like a drop in the bucket. That's because, as Moses leads us into the next section of the psalm, we're all born with an expiration date. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, all children and man. And then he goes on to talk about the brevity of life. I remember the first time I heard that expression. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I, I think I was 10 years old, and this is when I was still, uh, as a young man, my, my parents were nominal Catholics, but they sent my brother and I to a CCD classes. And I remember the, uh, at a, an evening CCD class, the priest came on Ash Wednesday. And he went through the classroom, and he, you know, putting smudges of ashes on each forehead of, the, of these students. And he, as he came to me, remember, he smudged, and he said, remember, child, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And let me tell you, that's heavy news for a 10-year-old kid. That's heavy news no matter what age you are. Someone walks up to you, you don't know them, they smudge something on your forehead and said, remember, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. End your Christmas card with that. <laughs> but that's the truth of it. Everyone and everything, including time itself, has an expiration date. What's it, uh, that old line that says, the days drag, but the years fly? I, 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 you know, I can remember being 10 years old and wanting to be 20. And then when I was 20, wanting to be 10. And then when I was 30, wanting to be back in my 20s. And, and it, on it goes, because the, years dra the, the, the days drag, but time flies. The years fly by. And they, that that's, the expression captures the essence of Moses' words here. He's not complaining when he says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. He's not accusing God of being unfair, unjust, or unkind about the swiftness with which the years go by. He is simply stating a fact. And there is a lot of debate among scholars as to how old was Moses when he wrote Psalm 90. Some, some think he wrote Psalm 90 at the end of his life as he's standing there on Mount Pisgah looking into the promised land which he is not allowed to go, sort of this remorseful reminder, if you will, that despite the fact he won't cross over, uh, that God is going to still be his dwelling place. 
Others think that maybe Moses wrote this as a younger man in, in Midian tending sheep. He had grown up as a prince of Egypt, but because he had murdered an Egyptian slave master, he had to flee for his life. And so there he is tending sheep, this one who has a sense that God has called him to greater things, to tend a larger flock, a human flock, not these sheep. And Moses is reminding himself, you are my, you are my dwelling place. The years are in you know, my time is in your hands and all of that. He's simply reminding us that life is short compared to the eternity of God. But life is short for a very specific reason. It's not that we just have an expiration date. We have an expiration date because we have done something to shorten our lifespan. And that's the, second, that's the next section of the psalm, that life is short because sin has consequences. Moses uh, says as much as he begins uh, in verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Uh, and then he ends in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's an uncomfortable truth that Moses states. We die because God is angry. And God is angry because we have sinned. Sin is more than just failing to worship God and refusing to follow his rules. Sin is rejecting the very idea of worshiping God and following his rules. And sin has consequences. There's a reason why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. In Romans 6.23. So when Moses says that we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed, he is not saying that God is acting impulsively or irrationally or unjustly when he brings our life to an end because of our sin. On, on the contrary, he is simply stating again a fact. It is also declaring God's patient and righteous response to sinful conduct because if you follow the logic, if you will, that if our sin brings us under immediate condemnation because God is holy, righteous, and good, we should not even be born, or we should die almost immediately after we are born. But we aren't. We don't die. We live, and we live for the very reason of the God who is gracious and good can redeem us and make us alive spiritually so that we can worship and honor him and do as he says. God is patient with us. Peter says this as well in terms of counting a thousand years as one day and one day as a thousand years because it is God's desire that all should come to repentance. And so there is this aspect of God's patience in his righteousness and in his wrath. That's the testimony of the scriptures that verify this. Nehemiah, when he is writing and, and, and praying to God in, in his role as governor, he says, many years writing to the Lord, uh, as many years you were patient with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not pay attention. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And you might add to that, and you are our dwelling place in all generations. That the reason why God is patient with us is so that we might come to realize 
What has separated us from him that in the brevity of life, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that life is short? That even if we are to live, as Moses will say, 70 or 80 years, which is not a guarantee, but just a general principle. What is 70 years? What is 80 years? Or as Queen Elizabeth lived to 96. What is that compared to eternity? It's literally a drop in the ocean. God is patient with us so that we might be led by his patience into a repentance and a confession of faith in him. It's also the testimony of Daniel with regard to God's patience in in bearing with our rebellion. Daniel, in praying this prayer of confession in Daniel 9, says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Moses himself would plead with God to forgive a rebellious nation. Remember, when Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, and while he's away for 40 days and 40 nights, the people begin to get a little nervous, a little anxious, and they, they tell Aaron, look, you know, what are we doing here? Where is this fellow Moses? We don't know if he's going to come down or not. And Aaron immediately goes to plan B and says, I'll tell you what, give me all of your gold. He uses, he melts it, and he creates the golden calf. And the people worshipped it. And then Moses comes down, He's angry, he throws the, the tablets at the feet of the calf, and then he goes back up to the mountain and he intercedes for God to forgive his people. Sin has consequences, and the verdict is inescapable. Our sin awakens God's wrath. It's not a comfortable topic. It's not something we like to talk about because we live in a culture, I think not just within the church, But certainly in the larger culture, we live in a culture that God is love, and he loves everybody. And really, only really, really bad people, really bad people, don't make it into glory. But the fact is, everyone is born with the birthmark of Adam's sin, and because of Adam's sin, even the creation itself groans. So it's because we're not righteous, it's because we're not holy, that we need God's grace Because apart from God's grace, we'll not enter his kingdom. Apart from the mercy of God, we can have no relationship with him. Apart from the steadfast love of God, all our days will pass under his wrath. As Moses says, we live 70 or 80 or older. What does that compare to the eternity of God? Life is short. And it's very brevity should make us think seriously about where we'll spend eternity. Now, it's easy for me to, to, to say that as, you know, I'm approaching my 64th year in a couple of months. It's more difficult, I think, when you're in your 20s or 30s to think that long term. Unless death touches your life at that age, is you won't think about it. I remember in Ohio, there was a young man who was 21 years old, and he was killed tragically in an automobile accident. Let me tell you, all of the 20-somethings in our church were suddenly thinking very seriously about life and death and what comes after. Because you're reminded at that point, when you're 20, you are bulletproof. You are practically invincible. You do anything and everything for the thrill of it because you know 
Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm in the prime of life. And then when you wake up in your mid-30s and your 40s and you wake up with the pain, you think, what did I do yesterday? That's, this, is, this is odd. And then time begins to remind you, yeah, you're not as young as you think. You don't have as much time as you thought. And there's a reason for that. To make us aware of the fact that life is short, but God is eternal. Where are you going to spend eternity? No matter how long we live, 70 years, 80 years again, which is not a promise. It's not a guarantee. I remember trying to talk to some people, um, you know, say, well, you know, God promises. He guarantees us 70 years. I said, what? No, that's not what is going on here. It's a general principle. And Moses says, even if we live to be 78 or 80, much like uh, Jacob complains to Pharaoh, it says, the years of my pilgrimage have been 120, and they've been hard and laborious. So even if you live to be that old, it's not always an easy life. That's simply Moses' point. Isaiah picks up on this when he says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. James, the, the brother of the Lord, the apostle, says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Again, write that on a birthday card. So happy 30th birthday. Your life is a mist. But there's a certain, sto there's a certain not stoicism, um, astonishment that should overwhelm us at that point. Which is why Moses says, teach us to number our days. Give us a heart of wisdom to fear you. To live in awe of you. There's, we read that word fear, or we hear that word fear when it's applied to God, and we go to the negative aspect of it, of being frightened, of being scared. I was just listening to a sermon on the way in where the, the preacher talked about fear from the standpoint of awe. That when you, let's say you go to a, a concert or you go to some, some natural wonder, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, or you, you stand before a work of art that is just a magnificent masterpiece. And what happens when you're in the presence of that? I mean, if, once you put aside your phone, you're kind of quiet. You're silent. Why? Because there's something about being in the presence of something that, that's beautiful or that's awesome that just demands, it pulls from you a reverence and an awe. And that's the response that Moses is calling for from us. To, to meditate, not in a morbid way about the brevity of life, but to meditate in the fact that even though life is short from a temporal standpoint, those who put their trust in Christ are the ones who truly live forever. Those are the ones that have a heart of wisdom, that pay attention to the persistent reality of God's reign and rule fully aware of our uh, real problem, which is sin and our separation from God. A heart of wisdom is one that trusts God to be the only safe space in whom we can live and breathe and have our being. A heart of wisdom belongs to the person who fears God, who worships Him. If we want to live wisely, to have that kind of intimacy with, with God, be aware of the brevity of life. Be aware 
not only of God's anger against sin, but his remedy for it. Because to avoid thinking about God's anger and his wrath is also to avoid thinking about his love and his mercy and his grace. There is an antidote for his wrath and anger. It is his mercy. It is his grace. It is his great steadfast love. We are brought to an end by God's anger. Yet, here's what the scripture assures us. The very same God under whose wrath we must all pass is the very same God who loved us sinners enough that he gave his one and only son to whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You can't understand the miracle of salvation by grace through faith in Christ unless we understand that the cross is the very means by which God satisfies his wrath against us. We You have to read Psalm 90 from the perspective of the New Testament. Even if we live to be 70 or 80, no one lives forever, but the surest way to live forever is to trust in Christ, to have a wise heart, because a wise heart is then permitted to make a bold request, and that's the last section of the psalm. The section of the psalm where uh, Moses begins, Return, O Lord, how long? And if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that Lord is capitalized. Because Moses is here now addressing God by his covenant name, Yahweh. Before this, he'd been talking to the Lord by addressing his by name, Adonai, or Almighty. But here it's Yahweh, Lord. The very name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. Why is that important? Because Moses is appealing to God's covenant character and his promise. He's reminding him that you have sworn allegiance to this people, rebellious though we are, never to leave us, never to forsake us, never to abandon us, never to leave us in our sin, but to always, by your grace, lift us out. He appeals to God as a God who keeps his promises. So Psalm 90 holds, like, it holds two truths in tension. On the one hand, God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for all generations, forgiving those who seek him. And the other side of that equation is God is holy and just and righteous and he will punish sin. It keeps those two truths in tension and in balance. Remember, again, when Israel sinned in the wilderness in the golden calf, Moses prayed. He prayed a bold prayer. After he asks God to forgive them, and after he tells God, he says, why should you annihilate your people because of their sin? Don't you know that word will get back to the Egyptians? And they will say, aha, he brought them out, but only so far? That's bold. That is brazen. But when you have a heart of wisdom, and you know the brevity of life, and when you know the character of God as a covenant-keeping God, you can make a bold request like that. He prayed boldly, did Moses, by relying upon God's covenant name. You get to the New Testament, we can pray with a similar boldness. It's, It's the same boldness that Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. That's bold. Because we're not addressing God in the Lord's Prayer by His covenant name, Yahweh. We are addressing Him by a personal name, a parental name, Abba, Father. 
It's the same boldness that the writer of the Hebrews will tell us that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that when we are in need of mercy, when we are in need of grace, we can demand it. Not on the basis of our goodness, not on the basis of our righteousness, not even on the basis of the severity of our pain or our circumstances, but on the solid foundation of the fully accomplished work of Christ. That's boldness that we have in Christ's name. And it gives us that assurance that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast. Why? Because the wrath that we deserved poured out on Christ. The same boldness that Moses prayed with is the same boldness that allows us to draw near to the throne of grace. It's why then Moses can say in verse 15, in light of Israel's rebellion, in light of all of the things they have done wickedly, he says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. If you listen closely, if you know your Old Testament well enough, you will hear echoes of Joel 2, 25 and 26 in this prayer. What does Joel 2, 25 and 26 say? God speaking through the prophet says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. Why will his people never again be put to shame? Because all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the sin that brought about the locusts to devour what Israel had, all of that has been poured out on Christ. So when you go to God in prayer, when you are in pain, when you are confused, when you are dismayed, when you are angry, when you are lamenting his absence, when you are lamenting and complaining about his lack of care and concern for you, remember that the very wrath that you deserved has been poured out on Christ, and now you have that ability to complain, to lament, so that God will give you a heart of wisdom and further insight. It's the same thing that Peter talks about in, in Acts 3, when he stands up again and he preaches this marvelous sermon, he says, and he's talking to his people, he says, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the prophets long ago. That kind of joy, that kind of refreshment, that comes only through a renewed relationship with God. And a renewed relationship with God means a fresh experience of His grace, a new experience of His power. It's what Jeremiah was talking about. Your, your mercies are new every morning because He's an eternally new God. And that explains then why Moses ends the psalm the way he does. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's actually two prayers in one. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. Because in the end, God's grace is the only thing that gives any purpose or meaning to our lives. It's the only thing that gives us permanence. Without God's grace, we have no hope 
of an eternal inheritance. We have no hope of repentance or restoration or renewal of a right relationship with him. But with a renewed relationship comes great blessing. He establishes the work of our hands. He gives us a legacy. He gives us something that is real and tangible. If our heart is fixed on God as our dwelling place, we can be sure that he will establish, he will direct our ways. Even if those ways lead us through times of wilderness and wandering. God is our dwelling place. Life is short. Sin has consequences. Wise hearts make bold requests. I remember when <clears throat> I was thinking, uh, the first funeral I ever did um, when I arrived in North Dakota was for an elderly gentleman. Uh, he was well into his 80s, and uh, the funeral was over. Everyone went downstairs into the fellowship hall, and there was, a, if you have experienced North Dakota culture, they have a little lunch afterwards. And so you're sitting there with the meal, and everyone was about to go home, and there was this older gentleman who walked up to the widow of the, the, the fellow who had died, and uh, he said the woman's name, and he, he praised her husband for being a good man. And then in a very uh, thick uh, German accent, he said, but you know, we're born, we live, and then we die. That's the way it goes. And I stood there, I think my, I try to keep my mouth, that's all you got? We're born, we live, and then we die, and that's the way it goes. And I wanted to say, yeah, sure, yes, we, we do die. But because God is forever, we just don't dissolve into the dust. We are welcomed into our eternal home. I, I think Frederick Buechner, I came across this quote, he, he, and I'll end with this, he captures this very well. He says, to be a saint is to live not with hands clenched to grasp, to strike, to hold tight to a life that is always slipping away the more tightly we hold it. But it is to live with the hands stretched out to give and to receive with gladness. To be a saint is to work and to weep for the broken and suffering of the world. But it is also to be strangely light of heart in the knowledge that there is something greater than the world that mends and renews. All I would add to that is, it's not a something. It's a someone. God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, he is our dwelling place in all generations and for all generations. May he be your dwelling place now, forever, and always. Let's, you think about that.